0: Welcome to the CRE podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. And this episode is in partnership with the Canadian Real Estate Forums. I am Adam Pawatic, and my co host, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Today, we are welcoming Tom Dicker to the show. He is the VP and Portfolio Manager, Equity Income Team. At Dynamic Funds, welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks, guys. So we got introduced to Tom through the real estate forums. He's been on, I think, more than one panel in 2020, and he is very well versed in REIT analysis as well as other income streams. So we are going to get to a pretty <laughs> good discussion today on Canadian real estate, but also how that plays into the broader investment world and. Boy, I hope for everybody listening that the real estate's the winner. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. well, and Tom's actually interviewing right now. He doesn't know it, but if he performs well, he might be a repeat guest. We'll find <laughs> out. Yeah. Wish me luck. Wish me luck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so before we get into all the insight, if we can talk about your background, how you got to where you are today.
2: That's a great question. Thanks. So I started in the finance business. I'm a career finance guy and a career buy side guy. I started in 2004. I left the University of Ottawa in 2004 with a BCom and really didn't know what I wanted to do. My specialization is actually in marketing, but I really did not know what I wanted to do. I'd always been interested in finance and I had started out with a finance major, but wasn't able to get all my prerequisites. I, I had to take on a job when I was in university. So when I finished with this degree in marketing, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came to Toronto and I was working at a headhunting firm in finance in the financial services sector. And they were trying to place me as an investment advisor. And that advisor wasn't able to hire me, but he had a client who was a by-sider who needed a guy, needed someone to come and do his trading and maybe be an analyst. And so I started out there in 2004. I was employee number five at this uh, relatively small investment management firm. Started out as a trading assistant. Actually, my original title was junior trading assistant. There wasn't a senior trading assistant. There it was they just wanted to make sure that I knew that my title accurately reflected my pay. Um, <laughs> so it was a, a a nice junior job I started out with at that time. And then the thing about working at a small firm is you get to try on a lot of different hats. And so I quickly kind of became the trader and then I became an analyst. I worked and got my CFA, uh, which is Charter Financial Analyst designation. After a few years, I was actually able to get registered as a portfolio manager. And that was really what I wanted to do then. That was my passion was definitely stock investing at that point in the sort of Warren Buffett style of investing. I was at that time headhunted away and I started at Dynamic Funds in 2011. And I've been there ever since, so almost 10 years. And I started out as a generalist. I was working in equity income and dividend investing at my previous role and in and, and general equities. I did, you know, resources, oil and gas, all of that different stuff. When I started at Dynamic, what they really wanted was a good stock picker. They said, you know what, well, we know real estate. We know real estate investing really well, but we need a good stock picker that has the same sort of attitude as we do. That was how I ended up becoming a real estate specialist, which is, you know, was at the time something that I spent you know, maybe 5 or 10% of my time on. I was you know, very happy to join that team. It's still, to this day, led by Oscar Velay, who's my partner and mentor and who was the manager of the Dynamic Global Real Estate Fund, which is, the, which is one of the funds that I run now since... Uh, I think he was running that since 1998. So it's, it's actually the oldest real estate fund in Canada. That was the story. And I've been running real estate as a specialist
1: ever since. We'll go back a little bit. got your CFA. When did the light switch? I mean, for some of our younger listeners to you all of a sudden decide, okay, now I found my career. What was the thing that kind of got you comfortable saying, this is where I'm going to stay for the rest of my life?
2: I don't know if the, if there ever was a sort of light switch moment. I think in the back of my head, stock investing was always something that I was interested in. I always always remember, you know, as a little kid seeing the newspaper and you know, looking at quotes in the back of the, it was the Ottawa Citizen, was the local newspaper when I was growing up and listening to, uh, you know, the business section on the news. And, you know, when I grew up, it was the tech boom was uh, going on, the, the first tech boom, not the one that's going on right now. So I just remember a lot of that being very kind of influential on my, in my early years. So in the back of my head, I always had the idea that I wanted to go and, and invest in and pick stocks. I think my mission now is very different than what I would have thought a good mission was when I was a kid, which would have just been be a speculator, make as much money as you possibly can, try to pick you know stocks that can go up 10x. And now, of course, I'm an income investor. It's a very different goal. You know, My goal for people is to help them stay wealthy and generate an income stream off of their retirement savings. Very different than what I would have thought would be an interesting career, but it turns out that this is the big problem that our society has right now. A unit of retirement income is extremely expensive. Why? Because of low interest rates, of course. But that's how we kind of moved from me of the late 90s to where we are now.
1: What do you mean by a unit of retirement income? How do you, what's that? So, so you that, that's that?
2: A, It's a theoretical thing that I think about it all the time, and I should remember that other people don't know this. So, so the whole idea that CPI is the right measure of inflation there's certainly some truth to that. But when you look at CPI, it doesn't capture everything, the price of everything. And one of them is asset prices, right? In the CPI basket, consumer price index basket, the price of bonds isn't in there. And so if you're an individual who's trying to retire, you used to be able to buy risk-free income for $100 used to get you six or seven or $8 of, of risk free income. And now $100 gets you $1 of risk free income. So that to me means a unit of retirement income has gone up six, seven, eight times in price. Like you need now to get that $8 of retirement income, you need $800. That's, you know. So there's been a a big
1: amount of inflation in that. Okay, hold on to that. We'll come back to that near the end because now that ties into the conversation about interest rates, et cetera. But we'll finish the conversation. There's the hook for our listeners. Now you're Mm -hmm. stuck listening to the very end. We're here to talk about REITs too. So you you have a kind of a macro perspective on REITs sort of globally. So maybe let's start there. When you're evaluating REITs, whether it be Canada, North America, or worldwide, Are there distinctions? Are there ways that you approach it? Or is it all about cash flow?
2: Yeah, Each market is definitely different. Each market varies meaningfully. But I'd say that the market bifurcates into developed world, real estate investing, and then emerging markets, real estate investing. And we tend to focus on developed markets. The big reason tends to be that those markets have much better financial disclosure. Real estate, as you know, is a contract business, right? The contracts are so important. Having good disclosure and good contract law is really, really important. And whether that's common law or civil law, it doesn't matter so much as, you know, l- legal enforceability matters an awful lot across all the securities industry. But I find, especially in real estate, you, you really want to be in those markets where contract is sacrosanct. That'd be one place we'd start with. And when you're looking across a market like Europe, there are a bunch of differences between the markets. Europe's one market in a way, and then in in many ways, just like a Canadian would say, well, Vancouver's a very, very different market than Toronto or Montreal. Like, oh my gosh, it's so different. Like, that's definitely true of Europe. And we, you know, we, we as North Americans tend to look at like, you know, investing in Europe is like this, you know, one Big market, but obviously there are, you know there are some big differences within and between all of the European markets as well. which would be the biggest market we invest in outside of North America? So for us, it would be Canada and the US. makes up maybe seventy five percent of the portfolio. and then another twenty five percent gets spread around to other developed markets. So that would be Japan, it would be Australia, it would be Hong Kong, all of the European markets, UK
0: Germany, uh, France, et cetera. You're paying attention to a lot of geography, big for an interesting question. If you were investing for a different purpose, if you're investing for those 10X home runs, where are you going to dump all your money into an all your eggs in one basket big power move? So I know this goes against your entire investment thesis, but if you were of that mindset, which country are you going to dump all your money into right now?
2: Well, I think you want to invest in any case, whether you're looking for 10X or 1X, in a market that you're familiar with and comfortable with and where you can generate a thesis that's really differentiated. So for me, it probably wouldn't change at all. Like I, I wouldn't suddenly say, yeah, we should go and invest in emerging markets because we think you know, the probability that we come up with, with a 10x is higher. First of all, because I don't know those markets very well, that would be one. And secondly, because you know, we've seen lots of opportunities to make lots of money here in North America. I think you mentioned as well that you're, you're heavily weighted towards Canada. What's the reason behind that? In investing, they have this term called home country bias, and it's a bit of that, but I think with good reason. For us, we're located in Canada. We're a big fish in a small pond here. We manage a few billion dollars within the Canadian reed industry, which is less than $100 So we're a very meaningful player here, which I think gives us a strong informational advantage. We're, We're really good at staying in the flow of what's happening here in Canada, and we know these markets very well. That has helped us. Secondly, I think for all the reasons that I'm sure many of your listeners know, Canada's a great place. We have really strong immigration into Canada. You know, some of the best in the developed world population growth. So good long-term demographics, really good contract law, like I talked about. But the Canadian REIT universe is unique. It's really great. It's one of the only markets in the world where you get paid every month. I pay my unit holders in many of the funds that I run, you know, dynamic funds, equity income team, we pay our unit holders every month. So there's a great matchup there with getting these REITs that pay income every month. And then the other nice thing about the Canadian market is one of the criticisms of Canada is not that dynamic, controlled by only a few players. That's also good because it leads to, I think, a smoother long-term trajectory, less boom and bust compared to some of the other areas of the world investing in the United States and Europe, where you can get either Europe because of Dead and and poor demographics are in the US because of the whole lot of competition. You just get a little bit more boom and bust there than maybe you do here in Canada. The five or six banks we have here in Canada, they're very well capitalized, well regulated. That has always, not always, but in my investing career, has meant a really strong partner for real estate and and real estate companies. And as we all know, real estate is a capital intensive business. So being close to the capital provider, having a strong capital provider that's always there, that's really good for
1: Canadian real estate investing. This could be a question for Canada, North America or global, I guess, Tom, either way. It's really a question about the maturity of the REIT market. Like, I don't know the answer. I legitimately asking this. Like, are there more REITs coming to market? Are there more, you know, private players converting into REITs? You know, is it something that, that's still growing as far as just the number of participants, ownership structures, et cetera, that are, whether it's Europe, like I don't know, are there major REITs in South Asia? Like, I just don't know about what the global context. Clearly, in Canada, of course, it's a major function for landlords to structure their ownership structure, right? Like it's just it's something that I feel like it's kind of mature to the point where we're now seeing the privatization of REIT for people are making decisions that I'm actually going to go reverse back to a private ownership structure. Where does Canada's maturity in the REIT market compare to other nations around the world?
2: Yes, yeah, so Canada's quite good in real estate. We've had an industry since, as many of your listeners would know. The early 90s. So it's been around for a while. We have good REIT legislation in Canada. And that's really what allows a country to have a REIT market is having good REIT legislation. So the U.S. has it. They have it in Europe and in all the countries there. They have it in Hong Kong. They have REITs in Japan, in Australia, New Zealand as well. And so having a good REIT legislation is, is what allows Country to have that sort of tax free flow through that makes a REIT a wonderful thing and a great way for retirees and anyone who's interested in income to get access to real property and real income. So, uh, to your question about are REITs going public in other places? Definitely, and in Canada, definitely. When the public market is trading at expensive valuations or at least close to net asset value, that will bring out more IPOs and more companies will go public, or the public companies will raise equity and buy private companies and effectively bring those private assets to the public markets. And there's a good reason for that. It's because if a REIT trades at a discount to net asset value, and they need to issue equity at a discount to net asset value, when you issue equity at a discount to net, the value for all the holders uh, goes down a bit. So you get diluted. Right? But if you're trading at NAV or above NAV or very close to net asset value, that transaction could in fact, if it's at a significant enough premium to net asset value, it could be accretive to net asset value. So if you're trading at a 20% premium to net asset value, if you raise a dollar of equity, you're actually creating net asset value with that transaction, with that equity transaction. And then you can go out and buy assets in the private market and all of a sudden it's worth more in the public market's eyes. And the other thing that can happen in those situations is when you're trading at a premium to net an asset value, you know, when, you're, when you're raising equity, your g the corporate overhead, gets spread over a larger asset base, so you get some operating leverage as well. That tends to be more of a factor with smaller cap rates than larger cap rates, but even some large cap rates can get scale
0: advantages by raising equity and getting bigger as they're much larger. So then in that environment... If REITs have those additional benefits for acquisitions, does it make them more competitive against, you know, the privates where it's more just a, a you know, a cap rate, finance cost, yield consideration?
2: That's exactly what happens. Is there are periods when REITs trade at meaningful premiums and at asset value, and that's when the capital market, specifically the stock market, is sending a signal to REITs that. We like what you're doing. We like what you have here, and we want you to do more of it. Go out, buy more assets, own more things, own more buildings because they're worth more in your hands than they are in the hands of private equity holders. Conversely, if a REIT is trading at a big discount to net asset value, the public market is sending a signal that they should be shrinking, that they could sell an asset at net asset value and then have a dollar of cash that could potentially increase the enterprise value of the REIT, especially if they were to go and buy back stock at a big enough discount.
1: I'm going to use the C word. So COVID right now, let's date stamp it, January 11th, 2021. Uh, it's a two-part question, I guess. One of, Let's talk about the impact of COVID. I mean, we're almost a year into this thing now. Are there any REITs trading at a premium to NAV right now? And is that a result of COVID? If the answer is no. Yeah, so it's a great question. And there actually are, there
2: are a few REITs trading at premium to net asset value, not nearly as many as there would have been heading into COVID. It seems like ancient history now, but 2019 was actually quite a good year for real estate and interest rates were very low coming into COVID. So real estate had had quite a good year. And there were a number of REITs trading at significant premium net asset value—that number is much lower now. It's centered in just a handful of areas. Are there commonalities there, Tom, between those? Yeah, those so things? it would essentially be what I would call either COVID neutral or COVID beneficiaries, and typically because some secular driver that was driving them got pulled forward, some of that demand got pulled forward as a result of COVID. So themes would be whether it's industrial and e-commerce. So there again a secular theme of the move to shopping online and doing more e-commerce pulled forward as a result of lockdowns and shutdowns cell phone towers data centers so both of those data centers would be you know big beneficiary of work from home big beneficiary of the increase in use in cell phones you know 5G is a huge factor for data centers but also for for towers although that's more in the future than it is for right now the, both of those uh, subsectors did really, really well, performed very well, The financials were hardly impacted by COVID, those would be some of the areas that still trade at a premium to net asset value. And then there'd be you know, certain areas like self-storage where growth is really rebounded. So we were seeing some premiums to net asset value there. Anything where the growth story wasn't interrupted, the probability that the stock trades at a premium is much higher because that growth is so scarce right now in real estate. Growing cash flow is just much more scarce than it was pre COVID.
1: Little known fact, but Adam's actually the um, expert in data centers at First National. Oh. And we're going to go down a rabbit hole here. So I apologize for those that don't find this interesting, but I think it's interesting. Being 95% of the real estate market who don't care about data centers. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sorry. Adam and our lenders, right? Of course. And so we're always thinking worst case scenario. One of the challenges we have as a lender, and I think this is probably universal across our industry. These data centers are really just glorified warehouses, right? With really expensive stuff stuck in there. But the leasing rates are exorbitant compared to a alternative use, right? So take the expensive stuff out of it. It may rent at a random numbers, 10 bucks per square foot. Yet with that expensive stuff in there, it's renting at $150 per square foot. So how do you tackle that when you're trying to evaluate a REIT? Like, yeah, you got amazing cash flow, so I get it. But when you're trying to determine a NAV, are you considering what happens if that box turns into a standard fulfillment center versus, you know, the highly specialized use of a data center?
2: Remember that we're investing in public companies that don't really have the risk of switching. You know, if you're you're dealing with digital realty or Equinix, they're not going to decide at the end of this quarter or this lease here that we're going to have to switch this over to being a distribution center for secondhand Macy's discount apparel. So these are operating companies that really know what they're doing and have long-term leases. Your point about data centers is the biggest risk is obsolescence risk. And obsolescence risk is a risk in office. It's a risk in industrial. And it's certainly more of a risk in Data centers, especially because of the
1: fact that the thing that could go obsolete is a much newer technology. Elon Musk figures out a way to use quantum computing, and you can now do what you used to do at 100,000 square feet and three square feet. I mean, that's all of that is risk. And certainly,
2: these are things that you have to be aware of. But obsolescence risk isn't going to go away. You have to be comfortable with it. And I think it just speaks to the importance of needing a portfolio that isn't all data centers, that it has some data centers and some cell phone towers and some manufactured housing and some apartments. And that's the sort of thing that we're trying to do. And we know at at times we will emphasize certain other areas and overweight or underweight using active management and the liquidity that REITs provide. Because unlike with uh, an individual investor buying a data center privately, if we get the view that we think that all data centers are going to turn into logistics warehouses and the rents are going to go from whatever they are back to 10 bucks a foot, we can just sell them. We're able to do that. We're not stuck in them. And that's one of the nice things about being in the public
0: markets is you do have that liquidity. Well, since you just mentioned it, on the topic of waiting, if we're done with the data center rabbit hole that uh, Aaron took us down during COVID, you know, so you call it from March onwards, we won't ask for your secret sauce. Of course, I know that's, uh, you know, you get paid the paid the big bucks. But how much reweighting did you do? How dramatic was the shift in your portfolio as all the COVID headlines started rolling out and the situation got a little more dire through March, April, May, you know, where the whole world was really on edge?
2: It was fairly significant, I would say, without getting into the specifics, I'd say it was very meaningful. And there were two drivers of the <laughs> meaningful shift. One of them, was the opportunity that was presented to us by the market in the form of all of that volatility. We had big drawdowns in everything, right? Good, bad, ugly, everything went down a whole lot. And then it was our job to figure out what was going to come back the fastest and what was most likely to come back. And our view was that some stuff wasn't going to come back, or at least it wasn't going to come back nearly To where what we saw some of the more COVID beneficiary or or even the COVID neutral things were going to do. So so we made some very significant moves across our real estate funds. There were certain sectors like data centers and cell phone towers in funds that required a higher yield. We were never really able to own those stocks because they only paid two, three, four percent yields. But if those two, three, fours became three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, all of a sudden that's much more attractive for some of those income funds that require that higher yield. So we were able to go and do that. So that's you know something that was an opportunity for us within what was obviously a you know a really tough and stressful time and lots of bad things happening. That was you
0: know at least one of the more positive things that we were able to do. Well then related to that, obviously the vaccines were announced back in December and you know, the world's got a real positive light on it now that we're going to be coming out of this. Are you going to be doing a whole lot more reweighting going forward as we ride the upside of this uh, experience?
2: I'd say that part would be more modest. When I think about life in between when COVID started and and the November 9th announcement that you know Pfizer had a, a very uh, effective vaccine, you know our view was always through that time that a vaccine was coming. It just that really solidified the timing for us. So it didn't change a lot other than maybe w- when the timing of that vaccine was going to be. So I think you know when you're looking at a world with a vaccine, what does that world look like? There are a lot of really interesting questions, and a lot of them we still can't answer yet. If you're looking across the sectors, the two sectors I always, always get asked about by clients is office because most clients have an office. So they think a lot about their office and they're not in it, right? They're working from home. All three of us are in that same situation right now. So they ask about office and they ask about retail. And I'd say office, the question of where it ends up to me is still totally uncertain as to whether or not that's an investable asset class right now. Like, do I believe that the pessimism that existed in that May, June, July period, when I think every major publication, Financial Times, Economist, Wall Street Journal, everyone had a front page story about how no one was going to ever use an office again. You know, that was peak bearishness. That's too much. But to be very clear, it is not a tailwind. This work from home stuff is not a tailwind. Like it's not going to be good for office demand over the long run. Certainly people are going to demand More flexibility now, what that translates into in terms of long term office usage and traffic in the central business districts. I think that you know the book still needs to be written on that. I certainly would love to be able to go to my office lots of days to you know get out of the house and see some people, but how long is that going to last for? Am I going to want to do that five days a week? I I don't know, you know, And, and, and is everyone else? I don't know. And how that translates into demand, I think that it's still too early on the retail side. I think people will go back to shopping in stores. They will go back to restaurants. But it's really, I think the ecosystem in real estate has really been hurt and it's getting hurt badly today, tomorrow, you know, for the, these next couple months here are going to be very tough on the retail ecosystem. Suppliers are going to have it hard. Restaurants, rents, you know, obviously landlords are, are a supplier to retail. It's going to be tough over the next few months. we clearly... You know, lockdown measures in in a lot of the Western world are just only headed one direction right now, which is which is stronger. And that's going to be bad for economic activity and bad for ability to pay rent. That's the period we have right now. Now, on the other side of that, I do think things will get better. People will go back to shopping in stores, maybe not to the extent that they did before. You know, I think a lot of people and a lot of companies figured out how to do things online that they didn't think were possible before. So I think you know more things are going to get done online than ever. Do I think on Friday nights, everyone's going to do DoorDash if they could go to a restaurant? No, I don't think so. I think a company like DoorDash is over-earning today. Does it mean that that they're broken over the long run? I have no idea, but I do think that like I wouldn't use DoorDash if I could go to a local restaurant right now. And a lot of people are in that sort of camp. So, you know, I'm more of a believer in the long-term willingness of people to leave the house and and go and do things. I think the question about what happens to the central business district and all of the residential around that area is really still up for grabs. And it goes back to that office comment I, I made at the start. I really think that the future of that is really uncertain. And until everyone knows that the driver of all of that was office using employment in the downtown course. That was really what was driving it. it. was you know this flywheel of live work play where you know you want to be close to the office so that you can be in a place where there are a lot of people. And the lifeblood of all of that is the traffic, right? It's all of the people that are there. But if people don't need to be there, they decide that they don't want to be there because it's cheaper to be somewhere else, or they have an excuse, or you know, they get married and want to move away. You know, That could really change the calculation for what a square foot of residential or land or office space is worth in, in the downtown or, or retail in, in downtown for that matter too.
1: I'm sorry. This is, I love this conversation, but I, my brain's going in a thousand different directions. So I'm going try to try to hone it in here. Based on just your comment, I mean, I, I totally agree with you from a short-term perspective. Long-term define what long-term means, three, five, seven, ten 10 years, whatever it is. At some point in the future, we've forgotten about COVID. Do you not think, like, I think maybe in some form or fashion, societal behavior might have changed a little bit. But do you not think that eventually we're going to get back to the same normal where most of us are in the office five days a week, we're all going to sporting events, and we're crushing into the bar at five o'clock on a Friday, and you're being surrounded by people, no one's wearing masks, and you're not even thinking about this potential risk, like that, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about the vaccine getting rolled out, if there's some sort of you know herd immunity that occurs, right? And that eventually COVID is just a thing that occurred in 2020 and 2021 that we all tell our kids about, right?
2: It's a good question. And whether COVID becomes something that we forget about, I used to really believe that, but by used to, I mean, you know, even up to a few months ago, but the idea that there could be a COVID season every year is very possible, you know, there could be a flu season every year where that that comes up, uh, where people need to go and get vaccinated, and there's a new variant, and you know, it's it's tough to deal with. It's a handful every year. I mean, that's not impossible, right? I, I'd say like that's not my base case, but you cannot rule that out. But I think the important part is some of the behavioral changes and the places where people live have maybe changed a bit, and maybe just don't go away. And specifically, this work from home thing. I don't know that five or six years from now that we won't be doing some of that even a moderate amount of that it. and it's because people kind of get that there are some good things about working from home whether it's you know being close to your kids so you can pick them up from school not having to go on the subway and commute so you pick up a little bit of extra time for exercise or reading or just not commuting because commuting is difficult especially if you're here in Toronto can be you know TTC was not my favorite part of my day so whether or not some of that stuff remains much more widespread five or six years from now that is to me a real possibility like that could be a thing and that could impact where people live and where where people want to live now i think it's not just market forces at work here everyone in real estate knows that it's not just market forces you know there are regulations and municipalities that care about where and how people build so if everyone who lived in a downtown tower now decided that they wanted to live in a 3000 square foot house, you know, somewhere North of Vaughn, like they can't just do it. Like it's not going to happen. So we know that, but at the margin, all of this stuff matters. And you know, we all know that it's the, it's the marginal buyer that sets the price. It's the marginal bit of traffic. Like is that marginal bit of traffic happening more in the suburbs or is that going to happen in the downtown core? That still remains to be seen. I think That's more true in the US than it is in Canada because there are so many more secondary and tertiary cities that are livable. It's got a much more mobile population, a much more transient workforce than here in Canada. I don't think in any tower in Toronto, there's a CEO sitting today saying, I'm going to move my workforce to London or Calgary or Saskatoon because it's just cheaper there. And we've been thinking about it for a while and we're done with these high Toronto prices. I don't think that's happening anywhere, but we know it's happening in the U.S. We know the equivalent of that. You know, Someone in San Francisco is saying, well, we could move. I think our people would like it in Dallas or Austin or Denver and we can do that. And it's much, much cheaper. Like that is happening in the U.S., which is very, I think, very different
0: than Canada where I think the urban centers will continue to be more of the winner take all magnet for, for humans. There is obvious headwinds in the in the real estate market. How has real estate performed compared to other investments that you track since COVID started? How do we size up against other places that people could put their money?
2: Well, it's definitely not one of the top performing sectors in the S and P 500. Not not even close. In fact, real estate was pretty much down near the bottom with basically energy. You know, was one of the poor performing areas last year. Now, over the long term, real estate's tended to perform fairly well. And it's in these times where the downside's well known. The bear case on real estate is well established. I'm pretty sure that I could pull anyone off the street and get them to give me a bear case on office real estate. That's all well known. And that's in the price. So to me, it's more about the future and, and where things look now, where you've got you know this crazily hyped tech market. You've got, you know, Tesla going up eight percent a day, Bitcoin hit forty thousand dollars last week. There's a lot of speculation in a lot of other areas of the market. To me, real estate, this boring, sleepy, no one's ever going to need it again sector, like that's where the opportunity is. It's when there's it's when that uncertainty that we were talking about earlier, where there's that debate of like all right, you know, is it going to be normal? Is it not going to be normal? How's that going to look? It's the people that get that Decision right. That's where the opportunity is, not so much
1: in everyone agreeing that Tesla's going to sell more cars next year. That's a great perspective. I always have to bite my tongue because right now I want to say go buy more REIT stock, but I'm not supposed to give any sort of investing advice. <laughs> uh, everybody just do do whatever you think is right. Let's move on. I mean, the last sort of topic we had in our agenda was just to talk kind of kind of future looking the way we are now and just the impact. Some economists out there, and I'll just name Benjamin Tall as one that's on the record of saying interest rates will hit government of Canada five-year bonds, will hit one and a half percent by the end of 2021. You know, right now, I think they're at you know 0.4 or something like that. And I just, I'm curious whether that's true or not. I think it's kind of irrelevant, Tom. It's really more about the impact interest rates have on REITs. And in the event that, you know, rates are kind of near their bottom and will have a some sort of appreciation over the next period of time. What does that do for the REIT market? It's
2: the most important question, (laughs) one of two of the most important questions you can ask in real estate. When you're sailing, I'm not a sailor, but I use this example sometimes, you got to pay attention to where the wind is and you got to pay attention to the tides. And to me, the wind is the very easily observable thing that's happening right now. And that's like the supply-demand fundamentals. In real estate, that's supply-demand. But the tide, which is maybe sometimes less easily observable and tougher to predict is the tide is what we're all on top of, which is this interest rate cycle and where's that going it's a really important investment factor as you know in, as, as a you know in the direct investing and mortgage world and it's very important for us in the investment world because everything every asset is in some way priced off of what the risk free rate is what what is the, you know what are treasury yields And so it matters an awful lot, whether it's, you know, the five-year or 10-year, that matters a lot. Naively, obviously, the direct impact of, well, your interest costs are going to be higher. All these companies use leverage, so rates go up. That's bad because you're going to pay higher interest costs either now or in the future. But the discussion is much more complex than that. The biggest factor, though, is clearly that if you think that a cash flow you're going to receive 10 years from now is going to be subject to a lot more inflation, In between now and then, you need to use a higher discount rate on that cash flow. And real estate is about, you know, it's all about the terminal value. When you're doing a DCF, you know this very well. It's all about the terminal value. If you need to use a higher discount rate, I know this is a bit nerdy and esoteric, but that higher discount rate lowers the present value of of that future cash flow. And that's why it's so sensitive to, you know, especially as interest rates are so low now, even these small moves in interest rates can make a big impact on changes in that terminal value in the out years for any asset, low yielding asset or high yielding asset, but especially for the low yielding ones like really high quality real estate, small changes make a big difference. We care an awful lot about that. I would say that interest rates on government bonds is not a free market. You can't use your 2001 brain to look at 2021 interest rates like you can't do that because of all of the action of the central banks within bond markets to control the price of bonds that by buying bonds, whether it's the u s government or the Canadian government buying assets in the market, it has changed the price of assets very meaningfully. so the idea that the bond market is just this free market and that you know we could be somehow like massively subject to a move from one percent bonds to Three or 5% bonds like that won't happen because it would be too disruptive. The Fed would step in or, or the Bank of Canada would step in to lower bond yields. You know, they do it in Japan right now. The bond yields for the 10 years is pegged and they'll buy them all day long from you. So while I do think that there are lots more risks of inflation now, given all of the money printing, given all of the, the things that have taken place over the last year, the idea that we're going to have runaway government bond yields. You know, I think that's probably pretty unlikely. Could they continue to push higher? Yes. Will they run away from us? I don't think so.
1: Last question. And we had kind of talked about it earlier about, you know, just the concept of a retirement unit, the value of a retirement unit. Maybe just tie that off with just how real estate impacts investment. What portion or what part real estate plays in investment strategy?
2: That's a great question and a great place to finish it off. I think. If you look at where the big asset allocators around the world, some of the best in the world are the Canadian pension funds, where they are in real estate, they have a pretty significant weight to real estate. Over the long run, they've shifted more towards real estate. And clearly that's a function of low rates. It's a function of the fact that if you want to make a 6 or 7 or 8% total return on your portfolio, but some of that portfolio is invested in bonds and yielding Half percent, one percent, two percent, whatever that is, three percent. You're going to need something that is 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 if you want to get close to that six, seven, eight goal post every year. Real estate's clearly one of those places that you can go to get a higher yield, get some growth, get some exposure to real income and over the long run, inflation. I often get asked, what's the right amount of real estate to put in your portfolio? And if you think CPPs has got it right, if you use them as your benchmark, they're around 20. Well, I'd say for most people, their client or, the, or they themselves are older than the CPP's average client, right? So they probably need to have a little less real estate and maybe a little bit more equity and fixed income because they probably are going to need liquidity a bit sooner than the CPP will, because obviously, you know, the CPP's average client is the average Canadian is, I think, 39 or 40 years old right now, something like that. So if you start off with 20 as your goalpost, you know, some lower number, and depending on what your risk tolerance is, maybe somewhere in there. What I think is important for most people is to realize that You can own real estate in more than one way. And owning real estate in a liquid way through a real estate investment trust is a great way to own REITs. You get paid every month, which is fantastic. You have the ability to sell it anytime you want. You have the scrutiny of the public markets, whether it's the sell side analysts writing really detailed research, having that public disclosure out there all the time. And you get that price transparency on a day-to-day basis that... Folks on the buy side, individual investors provide every day by having that quote on the stock market. So you have an idea of what at least someone thinks it's worth. That liquidity obviously comes at a price, unlike the pension funds that get to not show the the price or show it once a quarter, mark their portfolio to a model. If you own a real estate investment trust, you're subject to much more volatility because it's an equity, it's an equity security. But the underlying assets, as everyone who invests in real estate know. The underlying assets, they're similar and they'll provide similar returns. And It's been studied empirically time and time again that our real estate, they do provide the same returns over the long run. It's just in the short run, you can get much more volatility. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad, but you get the volatility. But obviously, the volatility comes with the ability to sell and get your money out at any time.
1: I guess a nice positive note to end on. Tom, thank you very much for your time with this very informative I was joking on the front end. If you're willing, we'd love to have you back again and keep this. Oh, good. Conversation I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and talk some more about what's going on in the REIT market. It, it's, uh, it's a very uh, important and fascinating component of our business. We'd love to have you back on and keep our listeners sort of fresh with what's going on. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to. Thanks a lot. You guys did oh, great. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Tom. So Adam and I are going to jump on to our after show. So stay tuned while Adam and I digest this conversation with Tom. Tom, thanks again. Really appreciate your time.
2: Okay. Thank you.
0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I will discuss the conversation that we just had with Tom Dicker. The last time we did an episode we had a new word, and I'm happy to report that this episode, same thing. Unit of retirement, new concept, new terminology. I'm, I'm glad that uh, I can
1: still learn things from these uh, podcasts. And the other one I liked was the sailing analogy about you know the wind is the supply and demand and the tide you can't really see is the interest rate environment. I will use that at some point and sound very <laughs> smart.
0: Well, I actually am a sailor and in real estate, so I'll definitely be trotting it out at, uh, at some point. But yeah, a very interesting conversation. We definitely stuck at a, at a more macro level than I, I thought we would, but it was, it was super interesting. And I really enjoyed the conversation about REITs trading above and below their NAV and the effects on their ability to purchase and trade in the market. I was aware of it, but uh, you really put it in a concise
1: manner that hopefully everybody can understand. I really enjoyed that episode, that interview. He sits in a very sort of macro level, right? But still has to understand the nuances. So it was kind of fun because he could kind of, he could jump out, be high level and then dive right into the nitty gritty, which kind of makes it a much more interesting conversation. It allows you and I to kind of freewheel a bit more than you know having to, to stick to a general script, right? <laughs> so. I, for our regular listeners, they'd be like, do you guys have a general script? I think they feel like we're always freewheeling. <laughs> and I'll admit
0: that when he talked about real estate performing at the bottom of the s and I took that as a personal, <laughs> personal failing. I don't, I don't know why you just, you know, like rooting for your hometown sports team, just, you heard that as, a, oh, I like I knew that obviously real estate had taken a hit during COVID, but my feelings were a little hurt. But then I, I felt better at the end. We talked about pension funds you know, CPP being up at 20%, waiting for real estate. I mean, they're probably
1: single digit at the start of this millennium. So yeah. there is encouragement. <laughs> I'm sitting, flipping through Instagram as we all do, and there's some paid advertisement, which is, I don't know, it's about you know, Wealth Simple or something. And it's like, here are the stocks you should avoid. And I think number six was Rio Can <laughs> And i uh, always brings me back to one of my favorite moments of the podcast with Jonathan Gitlin, just going on a tirade about you know, his stock valuation. <laughs> and we didn't even get into that. That was one of the things on my list because I mean, you know, for our listeners that listened to the Mark Rothschild episode, you know, three or four months ago, one of the things that I think really surprised Adam and I at the time was that revaluations take no weight of future cash flows. Or development pipelines, right? It's as is today. What are you looking at? I don't care if you're going to grow your portfolio a thousandfold in the next year. It's about what your cash flow looks like today. And that was always, I think, the root of Jonathan Gitlin's tirade: is that like these guys are not thinking, you know, outside of the very, very minute. And we didn't even talk about it either. We kind of got there, but the privatization of REITs, I mean, that was Brookfield's logic, right? I mean, this week. Again, it's January 11th. So last week, Brookfield privatized their REIT because they were just looking at how low it was trading below NAV, and they just thought, "Well, wait a minute. Like we know what it's actually worth. So why wouldn't I buy it at a discount today and earn that value just one full sweep?" Now, not often do REITs have the backing of a master overlord that can they just go and spend billions of dollars to buy back all the stock. But nevertheless, like I'm curious if we see more of that in the future as this sort of uncertain time with COVID still seems to be beating up REITs. In my mind, again, I'm clearly biased, a little bit disproportionately.
0: Yeah, I mean, we didn't get uh, too granular on it, but uh, we did highlight that a handful of REITs are trading above NAV, most are below, but some of them would be substantially below NAV. and So that same case that Brookfield acted on, could make sense for a number that are substantially below. I mean, that could be an interesting time that makes some lemonade out of lemons for for some of these groups that are being unfairly hammered in the markets.
1: That was Brookfield's logic. Not only is it trading below NAV today, but we're also well aware of our incredible pipeline of development, right? That's coming to fruition sooner rather than later. So, I think there's probably a lot of people wishing they had, again, like I, I wanted, I how to like classify them as a as a corporate overlord that had billions of dollars they could just draw on <laughs> but nevertheless
0: well on that same theme of you know the pain being uh, unfairly spread around or disproportionately spread around for the ones that are trading above nav you have to wonder if there's a slight inclination to root for covid if covid is what's driving your values through the roof well, and i, I, guess, and I, I doubt anybody is actually doing that but you know just as, as a mental exercise
1: there would be that benefit on that note like maybe i'm just not tapped in, but when he started talking about like COVID season every year, like my heart sunk a little bit. I'm like, no, don't, is that really a thing? Like that can't be something that happens. Like I I don't know, maybe I'm just ignorant, but I'm just hanging my hat on the fact that this just it just goes away. And at one point we'll be like, remember COVID? That was crazy. And we sit in a packed, you know, room full of people not thinking twice about it. On a total side tangent, I was watching a Netflix series about Lego and how they had this new Lego house. Where like the whole theme was go in and just build Lego and it was I guess like a museum or something. But they just had these vats full of Lego pieces. And I'm thinking that's just like a COVID cesspool, right? Like kids just in there (laughs) touching all of these pieces. Like never again. Would that is anybody ever gonna just jump into a full big vat of Lego and start putting pieces (laughs) together? No. Right? Like (laughs) I was wondering where you were going with that. There's definitely a
0: sense in the market that this is just going to be solved and it's all upswing from here. But uh, yeah, it could be periods of retreat and withdrawal the COVID front, and then the market's reacting accordingly
1: in between it. Tom and I were, kind of, he kind of, and he was talking about short-term about, you know, there are going to be implications. Like society is not just going to one day go back to exactly the same way it was. The reason I bring up the Lego example is, at what point in time in the future would you walk into that Lego house and see a vat full of Lego and not think to yourself, oh, there could be COVID in there, right? Like yeah, at yeah. some point, a year and a half ago, I would have just dove right in and started building stuff and not thought twice about germs and what I might be touching, right? And so is there a point in time where you forget or not? And I think Tom was kind of around the edges saying like, maybe not. like Maybe this is a paradigm shift in the way that society thinks about things just forever going forward. I don't know. We usually like to end on a high note. And I don't know that we accomplished that with that last line of discussion. (laughs) Sorry. Well, there are some winners, no matter what. There are some REITs that are trading above NAV. So there are some winners. There's the (laughs) positive. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation and the after show. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you to the Real Estate Forums for introducing us to Tom. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast.